You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. It was another lovely week in Los Angeles with one whole half of a day of rain. So that was thrilling. I also got brave and finally figured out how to traverse the back lot at work. Turns out there was a pedestrian lane this whole time. So yeah, big week for me. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the two longest movie titles currently in theaters. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is a sci-fi action comedy film starring Michelle Yeoh. This film is creative, cool, and another film about generational trauma that is super popular right now. I really liked this film, but the runtime of two hours and 20 minutes was far exceeded what it should be. It definitely needed another pass in the editing, which breaks my heart to say because I I liked it. It was a really cool creative premise. It was just so freaking long. I mean, it easily could have been two hours. The good news is the film has high rewatchability and It had incredible performances. It was a good movie. It just did not need to be as long as it was. It was so close to being perfect. And then it had to tack on, you know, 20 minutes of montages it didn't need. Also, Data from The Goonies is back for whoever cares. He's been he appears in this film as an actor. So, you know, good with the bad. Then we've got the unbearable weight of massive talent. Now, when I heard about this film, it was a film where Nick Cage stars himself. I I thought, I'm sure like most people, that this was just going to be another one of those weird Nicolas Cage train wreck movies. By the way, because it ties in with the, the theme this week, Nicolas Cage is actually Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. And, you know, when it came to this film, I was right. This film is weird as hell, but in the best way possible. It is hysterical. Hysterically funny. The writing is top notch. The chemistry between Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal is flawless. It's meta and heartfelt and probably one of my favorite movies about movies. I don't know how well some of the jokes are going to land with people that work outside of entertainment, but I think there's enough going on with this film where, you know, even if you don't get like there's an obscure like SAG joke, which, you know, unless you deal with the showbiz unions, you're not going to necessarily know what SAG is. Well, there's like jokes like that, but it's it's so well-rounded of a film that I think you'll be okay even if you're not like the biggest movie person in the world. But this is definitely a movie for movie people. So do with that what you will. But you're listening to a movie podcast, movie history podcast. So I'm assuming you're a movie person. So in that case, Go see it. Okay, so this week we're covering maybe not one of Coppola's best-known films, but it's probably my favorite of his, and this is my podcast, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about some of the tricks that were used in camera to achieve the effects in the film, because we haven't really done a lot of that yet. 
If you've not seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, for this episode, I would recommend seeing it beforehand, especially if you're a visual person, because I do talk about specific shots in the film this week. If nothing else, I recommend watching the train scene. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you to watch it. Um, but an easier way, it's on Netflix right now. If you're not one of the 200,000 people who unsubscribed from Netflix last quarter. But be quick about it. This week's film is only on there until the end of this month, which is Saturday. I did describe the scenes as best as I could, though. But, you know, proceed with caution. Anyway, after finally having his first big hit since Apocalypse Now with The Godfather Part 3 in 1990, Coppola turned his eyes toward the Carpathian Mountains to take on one of cinema's best-known characters. That character was Dracula, and the film was called Bram Stoker's Dracula. I don't want to repeat myself too much, so if you want a backstory on the origins of the character, check out my October 11th, 2020 episode entitled Universal Monster Mash Dracula. Otherwise, with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Welcome to my home. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart. Come here. Let's set a scene here. Midnight, New York City, circa June 1992. Screenwriter James V. Hart is awakened by a phone call from a frantic Francis Ford Coppola in San Francisco. According to Hart, he couldn't calculate the time difference or didn't care. Bram Stoker's Dracula had been in post-production for several months, and everything was bad. A recent test screening had gone poorly, which freaked the studio out, which freaked Coppola out. Coppola practically demands that Hart get his ass on a plane to see just how bad this movie is. He hates the film. He hates the script. He hates Hart for writing the script. He hates the cast. He hates the studio. Everything is a dumpster fire. Great, I can't wait to see it, was Hart's reply. He'd only been trying for 15 years to get this film made. Quote, and I had one of the greatest directors in history at the helm of a disaster in the making. How was that possible? What had gone wrong? Could this film ever rise from the ashes? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Just before the cameras were about to roll on Godfather Part 3, Winona Ryder, whom had been cast as Mary Corleone, Michael's daughter, backed out of shooting due to nervous exhaustion. Her boyfriend at the time, Johnny Depp, called the set and told them that Ryder was too sick to perform. The on-set doctor visited her and diagnosed her as having a nervous collapse, deeming her unable to play the part. Coppola's daughter Sophia took over the role, which due to Sophia's performance become one of the most hated aspects of the Godfather trilogy. Six months later, Ryder brought Coppola a script written by James V. Hart, which was based on the book Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was about to become a television film, but Ryder thought it deserved to be more. That was back when that mattered. Coppola had agreed to meet with Ryder so that the two could discuss another project, which never came to be, an adaptation of Jack Kerouac's masterpiece On the Road, which Coppola planned to direct, but an ulterior motive was also to clear the air after her pulling out of The Godfather Part 3, which had caused extensive production delays. 
Ryder gave the script to him as a parting gift. Perhaps he'd like to read this really great script that she'd come across and thought was really good. Though she never expected him to read it because, well, she thought he didn't like her. Well, Coppola reportedly glanced down at it politely, but when he saw the word Dracula, his eyes lit up. Coppola had been attached to the character since he was young, as he'd always been a lover of horror films, particularly Dracula. Further, when Coppola was 17, he worked as a drama camp counselor. His girlfriend at the time was also a counselor, but at a different nearby camp. In order to get the 9-year-olds the 17-year-old was in charge of to sleep so that he could go and see her, he would read them Bram Stoker's Dracula. Hart, like Coppola, had grown up on Dracula films, specifically the Hammer films from the 1970s that starred, for the most part, Christopher Lee. In those films, Dracula was, in Hart's words, quote, a bloodsucker, a monster whom wasn't very attractive. Later on in his youth, Hart read the 1897 novel for himself and realized just how far off the mark all of the previous adaptations of Dracula had been. He saw the story as an epic gothic romance, one that has never been adequately told. As he began work on his script, he also wished to tie in the historical figure upon which Dracula is based, Vlad the Impaler, for a story that had never been told before, even though the character of Dracula had appeared on screen dozens of times by this point. As a result, every character that appears in the film whom has a character in the book is closely based on their literary counterparts. Also, for one of the first times, the hardly ever seen character of Quincy, the American cattle baron, appears in a Dracula movie. Typically, his role from the book has been split up between his two fellow suitors of Lucy, Lord Holmwood and Dr. Seward. And while the film is the closest adaptation of the book to date that I'm aware of. If there's another one, somebody let me know. There are some differences between the book and the movie. Notably, like I said, the beginning, there's no Vlad the Impaler, you know, pre-part prologue, I believe that is the word. There's no like Vlad the Impaler prologue in Dracula. That's completely Hart and Coppola's doing. As also several scenes and lines were inspired by previous incarnations of Dracula, notably the 1931 Universal Pictures one, especially in the scene when you first meet Dracula, like the the line, I never drink wine comes to mind. That's directly from the film from 1931, not in the book. Also, several design elements were borrowed from 1922's Nosferatu. Once Coppola had acquired the script and the funding, no fun stories there that I could find compared to the other two we've covered this month, Coppola began assembling his team to make Bram Stoker's Dracula a reality. This film was one of the first to come out of Columbia Pictures after Japan-based Sony had acquired the studio in 1989. Like most of Coppola's films, there was a long list of actors to play all the roles. There were ones that turned it down, except for like Mina, of course, because, you know, Winona brought him the script. Of course, she's going to get to be Mina. Coppola had wanted a young, well, younger Liam Neeson to take on the role of Dr. Van Helsing, which appeared to be pretty much a done deal until Anthony Hopkins, whom was hot off an Oscar win for Silence of the Lambs, showed interest in the role. Neeson was out, but don't feel too bad. The following year, Neeson starred in the Best Picture winner of the year, Schindler's List. Coppola wanted a young heartthrob to play Jonathan Harker to entice young women to the film, a part that would eventually, for better and honestly, breaks my heart to say, mostly worse, go to Keanu Reeves. Reeves' accent is often criticized in this film. It's considered the weakest part of this film. And yeah, it's not good. But I've heard much worse. See Jared Leto in House of Gucci if you want to see something worse. I think, I think, I'm pretty sure Jared Leto took over 
from Keanu Reeves as the worst accent ever in cinema. It is, I mean, oh God, it still haunts me. Coppola would later state that he regretted the reasoning behind his casting choice, but he didn't blame Reeves for that. He described Reeves as a prince in his eyes. You know, it's it, it's what happened. And Reeves would also state that part of the reason he gave not the best performance in the world was due to him shooting several films in a row. And he was burning out real hard by the time he stepped foot on the Dracula set. You know, you're young. You think you can do it all. It's fair. It's also Keanu. Are we going to really hate on Keanu? No, we're not. Dracula was played by Gary Oldman, whom was an established actor in the UK, but still pretty new to Hollywood by this point. But he was known for giving very, very intense performances. Getting into character for Dracula began weeks before shooting for Oldman, whom actually had a coffin in his garage and would get into it as part of his preparation to play the role. Oldman was also having like some substance abuse issues and was going through a divorce at this time. So, you know, he's going through some shit. He shot several of the scenes while heavily intoxicated and regularly clashed with Coppola over character choices, line deliveries, how Coppola was directing, on and on and on and on and on. The thing they apparently fought over the most creatively was the look of young Dracula. Before shooting had commenced, Coppola brought the actors up to Napa, California, and they all stayed in his house for a week of rehearsals, as he was known to do. This is a very Coppola move. The group read the entire book together, except Hopkins reportedly, who didn't want to, performed acting exercises and games, as well as rehearsed the script together in a manner more indicative to like rehearsing a play. Coppola does this because he thinks it's important for actors to get to have some time with the material to go over any mental blocks before the cameras start rolling instead of during, which in theory yields a better performance. He also encouraged the actors that if they found anything in the book that wasn't in the script that they felt should be to let him know and the scene would more than likely get written. Naturally, because they're actors, everyone's part got a whole lot bigger. When it came to the other creative stuff, Coppola chose to invest a significant amount of the film's $40 million budget in costumes in order to showcase the actors, whom he considered the quote-unquote jewels of the film. To do this, Coppola asked the set costume designers to simply bring him designs which were weird. According to Coppola, quote, Weird became a code word for, let's not do formula. Give me something that either comes from the research or that comes from your own nightmares. I gave them paintings and I gave them drawings and I talked to them about how I thought the imagery could work. Due to delays and cost overruns on some of Coppola's previous projects, such as the one we discussed last week, Coppola was determined to bring the film in on time and on budget. Spoiler alert, didn't happen, though not as bad as Apocalypse Now. To do this, one thing he tried was he had an artist storyboard the entire film in advance, a process which created about a thousand sketches. Coppola then turned the drawings into a choppy animated film and added music, then spliced in scenes from the French version of Beauty and the Beast from 46, along with paintings by Klimt and similar artists in that style. He showed the animated film to his designers to give them an idea of the mood and theme he wanted. Another attempt at keeping the film on time and under budget, he filmed on sound stages at Sony Columbia to avoid potential troubles caused by weather or just overall being on location, especially in another country. One scene, the scene on the streets of London when Mina and Dracula meet, is not a soundstage, but it was shot on the Universal Pictures backlot. When it came to the film's hair and makeup, 
Their designer, Michelle Burke, who would win an Oscar for her efforts, recalls, quote, Francis didn't want the typical Dracula that had already been done in Hollywood. He wanted something different, a new Dracula without the widow's peak, cape, or pale white skin. Burke also stated that she used her Catholic upbringing and angelic imagery for the design inspiration, as well as the 19th century attire created by costume designer Aiko Ishioka, who had originally been hired to do like art direction production design stuff. But once Coppola had seen her skills as a costume designer, particularly her sketches, he moved her on over to costumes. Coppola was also adamant that there would be no elaborate special effects or CGI when making the film. He initially hired a standard visual effects team for the film, but they told him that the things he wanted to achieve were impossible without using modern CGI. Coppola disagreed and fired them, replacing them with his 29-year-old son, Roman, whom had no experience in this manner, and he had to set out to figure out how to achieve some of the effects by using old-school cinematic trickery. Coppola's thought behind this, you see, is that the book was published around the same time as The Birth of Cinema, and he wanted only tricks from that era to achieve the effects needed in the film. He wanted to to feel and look like it would if the original filmmakers had made it. There's a really good scene at the top of the film, like I said earlier, that gives you extensive examples of all the tricks used to make this film. It's the one where Jonathan Harker is sitting on the train on his way to Transylvania and he's looking at a map which appears superimposed upon his face. This was a live effect achieved simply by projecting the image of the map onto his face. That one's that was pretty easy. In the same scene outside the window, Dracula's eyes magically appear in the sky, watching Harker as he travels. This was achieved by combining three separate shots into one. First was a shot of Oldman's eyes, and this was done with him wearing special makeup so that only his eyes would be seen when the image was projected onto the sky backdrop, which was the second layer. Then a shot was taken of Reeves sitting in the train, which was then combined with the background eye shot rear projected through the window. Then the camera, looking at all that, mushes it all together, makes it look like one shot. What is rear projection? I'm so glad you didn't ask. Rear projection is an in-camera effect which combines live foreground performances, in this case Reeves, with pre-filmed backgrounds. It was widely used for many years in driving scenes or to show other forms of distant background motion. It's it's literally just an image that was pre-shot, projected in the distance. It is a fancier version of a painted backdrop from like the theater and is a predecessor to the green blue screen technology, which is more than norm today. Shoot the rear projection and the live performer at the same time. Boom, looks like one shot. Cameras, fun fact, are very dumb and will believe whatever you put in front of them as reality. Another shot in this sequence involves a close-up of Harker's journal with a train appearing to travel along the top of the book, blowing smoke across the pages. This was a forced perspective shot using a huge book and a tiny miniature train model. This is called forced perspective. Forced perspective is when one item is placed close to the camera to look big and another place further away to look teeny tiny. When the camera sees them because it's dumb, it thinks the close thing is big and the faraway thing is tiny and it also makes them look like they're close together because they're arranged in such a way where it appears that that is so. After arriving in Transylvania, Harker is met by Dracula's carriage, and the driver seems to magically reach out and lift Harker into said carriage. This shot was achieved by having the rider, whom was Oldman, secret, sitting on a camera crane, which reached out and brought him towards Reeves. At the same time the camera was moved to the right, it like swings out, so it appeared as if the rider's hand wasn't actually stretching but defying physics altogether. 
To achieve the lift, Reeves was standing on a fake floor, which raised him up into the carriage. As the carriage approaches the castle in a later shot, you can see the castle in the background. This was achieved by painting the image of the castle onto a piece of glass and then positioning the glass in front of the camera while the shot of the carriage was shot on a soundstage. Then it looks like it's all one shot. See, cameras are super dumb. The next is a sneaky boy, and it's one that still throws me every once in a while until I remember I'm watching a movie, because this is still, I think, a pretty regularly used one. It's in the scene when Harker is shaving and Dracula approaches him from behind without a reflection being seen in the mirror. This was shot using one of the oldest camera tricks in the book. The actor with his back to the camera you see is actually Keanu Reeves' double, not Keanu Reeves, and the mirror is simply a hole in the wall with the real Reeves standing on the other side. Thus, when the hand touches the shoulder of the double, there is no reflection to be seen because there is no mirror. As an audience member, your brain helps out too as it figures it's looking at a reflection in a mirror, not a man standing in a hole behind a fake wall. Pretty cool, right? Later, when Harker is exploring the castle, there's a shot of some rats walking upside down on the ceiling while Reeves goes up the stairs the correct way. This is achieved by using double exposure. Double exposure is you shoot one thing, wind the film back, and then shoot another thing. So first, the shot of the rats was done with the camera upside down, then the film was rewound, and a matte box, which is a device used on the end of a lens, it's the thing with the the flaps. If you've ever seen like a picture of a film camera, it's the flappy thing. That's a matte box. But it's used to block out the sun or a light source in order to prevent glare or a lens flare, aka it's J.J. Abrams' enemy. So yeah, this was placed in front of the lens so as to ensure that only the correct portion of the image would be exposed to the light, which will go and expose the film. Another interesting effect was the usage of shadows. In Coppola's creative vision, natural laws do not work in the presence of vampires. So often in Dracula's castle, you'll see shadows kind of doing as they please. Just think like Peter Pan, like Peter Pan's shadow at the beginning of, of that. Coppola wanted to highlight Bram Stoker's Dracula's supernatural elements by doing this. These scenes, of course, are directly influenced by 1922's Nosferatu, which did similar things. There are dozens of shots and camera tricks like this throughout the film, though there is one single CGI shot, one of Blue Flames, a Dracula's castle. Roman Coppola would later describe the process as such, quote, It was just the challenge of doing it the hard way and the pleasure of knowing that was how it was done in the past, and we were staying in that tradition. Some other fun stuff that happened on set, Coppola brought in a real Romanian priest to make the marriage scene between Jonathan and Mina appear more authentic, which means that even though they were acting, Ryder and Reeves might actually be like Romanian Orthodox married in real life during filming. Of course, not legally because there's no paperwork, but like in the eyes of Romanian Orthodox God and... Coppola wasn't the only person Gary Oldman was clashing with on that set. He and Winona Ryder had a huge falling out very early into filming, and nobody knew why. Ryder would say that she always felt danger while shooting with him. To this day, only the two of them know what actually happened. Ryder described it in 2014 as teen drama and stated that the two are now friends. Speaking of weird shit Oldman did while shooting, during a scene where Sadie Frost, whom plays Lucy, has to like writhe as Dracula feeds on her, Coppola had Oldman whisper some, let's just say suggestive things in her ear, very, also very hurtful things, but it was the 90s and it was before men realized women had feelings. Oldman would also be unleashed in a similar fashion during the scene where he turns into a bat and went from actor to actor whom Coppola had had put on blindfolds and said scary, suggestive, messed up things in their ears while creepy music played. 
Coppola believes scaring the shit out of his actors by using another actor in a latex bat suit would yield a better performance. Oh, the life of an actor. So the film is shot. Now it's time to assemble it. They assemble it. Now it's time to start doing test screenings just to see what they're working with. In the months leading up to its release, Hollywood insiders who had seen the film felt that it was too odd, violent, and strange to succeed at the box office and very, very sweetly dubbed it Bonfire of the Vampires after the notorious 1990 box office bomb, Bonfire of the Vanities. Preview audiences are alleged to have found this movie too gory, so 25 minutes of footage was removed to make it less so. At the end of the day, though, it would turn out that the film would succeed because of its weird, not in spite of it. But before we got to that point, it was looking like Bram Stoker's Dracula was going to be a spendy disaster. As I told you at the beginning, Coppola called Hart in the middle of the night, demanding he fly to San Francisco to see the train wreck they'd made. When Hart sat down and watched the film, he was devastated. It was just as bad as Coppola had said. And the film's release was only four months away. The duo spent the next week reviewing every scene, shot, and unused footage they had to try and fix it. They revised the shooting script with the existing footage in the editing room, and according to Hart, quote, wrote new pieces, bits, inserts, tags, beginnings, and endings of scenes into the narrative that we had somehow missed in the scripting and shooting stages of the production. Coppola managed to convince the studio to get on board with doing these reshoots, which were reportedly extremely spendy. This included a new ending to the film, as the original, which had Mina going back to Jonathan in the end, had received booze from from test audiences. Coppola sold it as the only way they were going to make their money back by spending more money. George Lucas would actually be the one who gave the idea to have Mina decapitate Dracula at the end of the film. Spoiler alert, it's a 30-year-old movie. Just come on. Now, if you recall, there's a little problem because Ryder was not a fan of Oldman's or vice versa. So much so that the duo had outrightly refused to pose together for the image that ended up on the film's poster. Coppola inquired to Hart, do you think we can get Renona back to cut off Gary's head? Hart replied, it's the only way you will get her back. The final product, which is Bram Stoker's Dracula, is a sexy, scary, gothic romance, and all of the painstaking efforts that had been made on behalf of the crew and cast yielded a fantastic film that feels like it beamed straight out of the novel. When the film finally released on November 13th, 1992, it set box office records. The film made about $30 million its opening weekend, which at that time was the biggest release for a November-released film. Marvel films have since just obliterated this record. Bram Stoker's Dracula would be one of the highest grossing films of Coppola's entire career and was the ninth biggest film of 1992. Further, to promote it, which was weird for an R-rated movie to get this amount of like promotional stuff, but the film got a video game, replicas of the weapons were sold, a pinball machine was made, which I've actually played at a brewery, a VHS box shaped like a coffin was used when the film came out on home video, and a comic book was written by Roy Thomas and illustrated by Mike Mignola. Bram Stoker's Dracula would also go on to win three Oscars, including Best Costumes, which frankly are a highlight, major highlight for this film. Dracula would also save Coppola financially, as Zoetrope had been in dire straits for years and on the brink of bankruptcy. Coppola would finish out the 1990s in much better shape financially than he'd been in quite a while, and continues to make films this day amongst, like, 50 other side hustles. And the rest, dear listeners, is Hollywood history. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that'd be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're going to be covering some of the biggest mysteries ever to rock Tinseltown. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.